The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Spooky. So welcome to episode four of the 2019 Sundance Specials. That's right. This is the episode you're really going to like, Ben. This is I've been looking forward to this one the whole way down. So this is all midnight films, horror, and occult. How did Blair Witch uh, not end up here? I don't know. It was your personal pick. Oh, that's fair. But also, uh, should be said, Blair Witch was not in uh, in competition in Sundance in, in uh, 1999. It was actually a midnight film. Oh, right on. Uh, so there, there have been some great ones over the years. I believe uh, The Descent was a midnight film at mm, Sundance. Oh, yeah. I believe Saw was a midnight film at Sundance. Uh, I believe 28 Days Later was a midnight film at Sundance. Wow. You're, you're, you're a lexicon of, uh, of I, I Well, I, I could be wrong about them all being midnights, but I saw them all at Sundance, and I think they were all midnight films. This is something... They probably were. Uh, an intrepid uh, 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 investigator could uh, call me out, and I will happily uh, say that I was wrong. But I did see all of those at Sundance. So uh, what is up first is a movie that, again, I am uh, brimming with jealousy that I did not get to conduct this interview. Um, it is a film called Hail Satan. That's right. Hail Satan. There's, There's a, a question mark. Question mark. Yeah. And uh, it's great. And oh, my God, you are going to get to see it. It's uh, getting a wide release. It is um, a fantastic movie. And uh, we have to go to the uh, the world premiere. And there was a Q&A with the spokesperson for the Satanic Temple. This is a movie about the Satanic Temple. Lucian Greaves. I'm such a fan of the Satanic <laughs> Temple. Yes. Uh, and I got to say that uh, I've event and we're about to hear uh, a Q&A from the premiere. And then also I got to do an interview with the film's director, Penny Lane. And when I was leaving, uh, the, the team behind Hail Satan handed me a Satanic Temple tote bag, which... Uh, <laughs> it was a like the best swag I've that ever received. Awesome. <laughs> and then uh, Alana immediately stole it from me. So oh, uh, Alana now has the uh, Satanic Temple tote bag. I just want to get that so that when I go to Ralph's, I can have them put my groceries in that. <laughs> yes. So um, I don't even necessarily want to explain everything about the Satanic Temple because I believe that part of the fun for our listeners and anyone who sees this movie is going to be experiencing and figuring it out on their own as they they, they go through the documentary. But in this Q and A, uh, we get to hear from Lucian, the spokesperson, as well as Penny, and uh, Lucian explains uh, some information about how he and Penny got together for this documentary. Here we go. A lot of people wanted to do documentaries about us, and uh, Penny. Uh, reached out to me after she saw me introduce a, another documentary I'm in at the Harvard Film Archive. It was uh, about a cult from the 60s, 70s I did research about and had done an interview in this film. And I was talking about uh, how we kind of owed a debt of gratitude to this religious group for some of the foundations and some of our thought. And I think that Penny said that that was the first she realized that there was some kind of philosophical depth to the Satanic Temple, which made her want to look into it more. And then she invited me to see the premiere of her then current film, Nuts, which I thought was excellently done, one of my favorite documentaries now. 
but it wasn't until the Q&A session where she was talking about skepticism in general and uh, her fight with the anti-vax movement that I thought that she might really be a good fit for doing a documentary about the satanic temple. All right, so uh, what is our next clip? Does it need any introduction? Uh, well, uh, basically it's Penny on how she got the idea for this documentary. Here we go. I wish it was a better story. Like, we just heard about TST through the headlines, like everyone else. Like, you know, in my world, like my little secular atheist world, TST's antics kept showing up, you know, in my newsfeed. And I thought that I understood what was going on. I thought, oh, this is like the yes men. I get it. Like, they're not really Satanists. They're just pretending to be Satanists to make this really smart political point. And as, as Lucian said, it wasn't until I met him personally that I was like, oh, they're not fucking kidding. Like, this is real for them. And I, and I thought that none of the news stories that I'd seen that dealt with them had, had done any justice to the reality of the complexity. And it does take a little while to get it, right? Like, you know, if you're not familiar with Satanism as a concept, like what they're doing seems incredibly confusing. And so that was kind of my pitch to them was that, you know, with a feature length film, maybe I could bring people along. The next clip is, you know, there's a lot of humor in this documentary and an audience member asks about the humor in the movie. I mean, it should be said that this, the Satanic Temple is outrageously funny what they do. It's subversive and they're basically just culture jamming. And, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, uh, I, I can't wait to hear this clip. Here we go. I mean, I guess you don't know me personally. Uh, yeah, I always knew this was going to be funny. Like, the humor was a huge draw for me. I mean, this is fucking hilarious. Like, that monument was funny. Like, I thought even just, like, the really basic, like, misconceived ideas that I had about TST were so interesting because they were so funny and smart in that way. I would say the opposite. The surprise for me is how inspiring the movie became. I did not... Thank you. You. Like, I... I fully expected to go into this and have to like, and I did, like do a lot of learning about religion and what religion is and how it could function in people's lives. I've grown up myself with no religion, so I always thought religion was just a kind of mental illness. I didn't get it at all. And somehow through Satanism, I'm like, oh, I fucking understand religion. Like I understand why people want it in their lives and what brings people back to it and how you know my understanding of what religion was was so limited so my i was very challenged by the film and i was expecting to be challenged i was expecting to be challenged by these guys and also by the ideas i was not expecting to be as thoroughly inspired to, and to think about how in my own life like who my people are that i could gather with and make change because you don't need money or you know connections like you can just be really fucking smart and like get your five best friends. And that's kind of like what TST did. Like they were just, they had nothing at the beginning. It was just a good idea. And for me, the story of watching like this smart idea become a reality was just really inspiring. And our next clip is Lucian uh, about the reaction from people, uh, the reaction about people who are just now starting to understand the temple. Yeah, a lot of times we do what we do and we don't necessarily get in people's faces and demand that they understand us right away. Uh, from the very beginning, I knew that in order to be uh, vindicated, you know, we needed to carry on doing this and people needed to come to their own realization about who we are. And I think through the years, we've kind of seen that happening. Just this past winter in Chicago, 
in the state capitol in Illinois, our Chicago chapter put up a satanic display, uh, happy holidays display. Yeah, they, they had other uh, religious monuments sitting around. We just had a nice one that said happy holidays or whatever else. And people got really pissed off, of course. And one of the uh, local politicians or one of the Illinois state politicians decided it was a good opportunity to grandstand against us and speak out against this monument saying it was a real shame that the, uh, that the government had allowed this to go up and they should have stopped it from happening. And she had to backtrack on her statements because there was a, a real backlash of people saying she did not respect or understand free speech nor religious liberty. And that kind of backlash didn't happen before. I think people only now are starting to realize that Satanism can be a legitimate religious viewpoint. And I think the more people realize that other people accept that, the more they're going to be persuaded to look a little further or think a little harder when some of these ludicrous claims come out about satanic cults or there's a revival of the satanic panic or anything else. So I think bit by bit we're changing the cultural environment in ways we'll never really be able to measure, but for the better. Uh, I'm trying not to assume anymore that people who level criticism on social media are, are being uh, willfully obtuse. And I'm trying to also uh, give people the credit of assuming that some of their, even their political positions or odious positions are based on an improper understanding of the facts of the world. And sometimes you can educate them on some basic items and get them to think differently about their social politics as well. And I think you just have to be willing to take the time to explain that to people until it's just painfully obvious that they're just trying to antagonize you because people have made that assumption of us throughout everything we've done. Our last clip is Penny Lane on the question mark. The question mark? The question mark in Hail Satan. They could have not had a piece of Oh, they could have just called it Hail Satan, they but instead they called it Hail Satan? That's exactly right. Now we're going to find out. The point of offense is not just to upset people. Like, it's not like just, I mean, there are people for whom I assume that's the point. But I mean, for me, and the reason I related so much to the Satanic Temple is that you have to think about what happens after the offense. Like, I've offended you by saying I'm a Satanist, right? And then what? And then what happens? Now, these guys want to have a really interesting conversation with you about how, like, maybe your understanding of the United States' history and the constitutional realities are not quite what you've been told. That's a really valuable thing to do, and the offense has to happen first for that to happen. And that's what makes people want to have the conversation. So for me, like, yeah, we put a question mark at the end of the title, and that was our being compassionate. It was like, we know we're being offensive, at least we can put a question mark and be a little more inviting. All right, so now we have an interview that you conducted with the director of the movie, Penny Lane. Awesome, here we go. I'm very pleased to report that I'm sitting down with Penny Lane, director of the new movie, Hail Satan. And I added that little going up at the end there, Hail Satan, question mark. Uh, very good. You, you want to you wanna talk a little bit about the uh, why there's a question mark on the end of the movie? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, the, the movie was kind of always called Hail Satan. Like, that was always the obvious best title. Um, the question mark was really kind of a late addition in the, in the process. Um, but I'm actually really happy about it. Like, basically, we were starting to think about how we really wanted this to be, like, this is going to be in wide release. And we started to think about, you know, how many people could stand to, like, really love the film. 
um, but for whom the title might actually be putting up a, a wall, you know? Off-putting. Yeah. And, like, you know, and there was something, I had this idea about the question mark, and I thought, you know, it's just a little more inviting. Like, it's, and it, it can't be confused for, like, a horror movie or something. It has, like, this kind of, um, uh, yeah, it's a little bit cute, and it's a little bit cheeky, and I think it actually represents the film better, even though I didn't have the idea until, like, the last minute. <laughs> it, it's an inspired choice. I, I, I really appreciate that, too, because, like, uh, then you're going to get everyone like me going, Hail Satan. Hail Satan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and you could ignore it if you want to. I mean, you know, certainly Lucian Greaves hates the question mark, and he's all like, just ignoring it. Fine. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. You can leave it off. It doesn't hurt anything. All right. You mentioned Lucian, and for our audience who's mm. not maybe not heard of this movie, maybe not heard of Lucian, give us the the thirty second uh, pitch. Give us the log line. Give us, tell us what tell us what is your documentary all about? Yeah. So Hail Satan uh, really chronicles the the birth of a brand new American religion. Um, and uh, it is uh, the Satanic Temple, which really began as basically a kind of a joke, um, you know, a prank, a joke, a troll, just a clever idea, really just amongst a few friends in, in the Boston area. And within six years, which is, you know, till today, um, it went from that little clever prank to, you know, a really an international movement. Uh, and uh, in, in a recognized religion with hun- hundreds of thousands of members. So that's what the film's about. Hundreds of thousands of members worldwide, mm-hmm. not, not just in the U.S., mm-hmm. and, but, and quickly growing, too. Yeah. Like, um, you, ta- you touch on it a bit in the documentary, but like on Facebook and uh, through social media, uh, this new religion is finding followers every day. Mm-hmm. It is. And I think it's just a testament to how um, smart the ideas are at the core of it. As strange and off-putting and shocking and confusing as the idea of calling oneself a Satanist is to most people, nonetheless, there are really uh, a sizable number of people who are still way in the minority, but you know, there's a real niche of people for whom it makes a lot of sense. Uh, They understand that, you know, the value of, of taking on that identity, taking on that label, proudly proclaiming oneself the the outsider the the reviled you know the 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 misunderstood the marginalized and and what could it mean to sort of say like you know what what could be more marginalized than than satan in our culture and so yeah i think it just shows like how many for how many people um you know in in modernity we see kind of an increasingly secular world there are more and more people particularly young people if you look at polling who are um, not religiously affiliated at all. And I'm one of those people too. And I, I think that there's something deep and meaningful about a religious identity and affiliation that we miss. And maybe we don't even know we're missing it until a the, religion the com- comes camaraderie along. camaraderie you're talking about, the, co- the community? Or? So much more than that. Mm-hmm. That and more. Like, you know, an organizing set of principles around which you can develop a community and around which you can develop a, a worldview. I mean, you don't get meaning from atheism. Like, mm-hmm. atheism's great. I think of it as like a clearing away, right? It's like, let's get rid of some stupid stuff. Sure. Sure. But yeah. then what? And so it's not the case that every atheist should be a Satanist. But for some atheists, you know, Satanism has kind of come along and, and, and filled an, a need that they didn't know they had. And I think that's super inspiring and cool. 
I, th- I think so too. And I think your, your documentary is very successful. I think that it, when I, when I walked out of the screening room and I was having conversations with the other people who were there, they got it. They got it in a fundamental way. And I don't think it's just because it was a very cerebral Sundance crowd that would, that was in the room. I think that, um, the message comes through really clear and you draw a very clear distinction between the stereoty- stereotypical view of a Satanist from the past, or maybe what most people's association with Satanism would be, versus this new movement which is happening right now. Tell me about this split here between like the, the old uh, preconception, which I think actually works to the favor uh, as, a, as a shocking mechanism for mm-hmm. the people who are now getting involved with the new Satanism sort of movement, the movement through the Satanic Temple. That's, mm-hmm. that's correct, Satanic Temple, I got that right, okay. So let's say someone comes along who wants to join the Satanic Temple but they are one of these hardcore Satanists from days of old. I, I assume this isn't touched upon in the documentary that I recall, but there must be some sort of weeding out process or very selective membership. How, how does one uh, become this intelligent, secular, uh, separation church and state, modern Satanist versus the Satanists of old who want to sacrifice small animals and commit mayhem? How, right. how, how, do, you, how do you draw that? Well, well, two things. The first thing to say is that that Satanist of old is largely a mythological construction. To the extent that there have been individuals uh, throughout history who have been mentally ill um, and who amongst their various ravings have mentioned Satan or something, we're talking about like a Richard Ramirez type or like a Charles Manson, like they weren't Satanists. They weren't members of a Satanic church or anything. They just like threw that out there, you know? So what you have is you have like a millennia old kind of mechanism for marginalizing and murdering out groups. Um, you know, and it, it, the, the idea of what we now think of as a Satanist, you know, this kind of catalog of atrocities, right? Like, what do they do? They, they kill babies, they like rape, you know, murder, whatever. The worst possible offenses, right? Mm. That's a very old list of ideas. They used to be applied to Jews, moved into witches, you know, for a while. Mm. And then it became something we called Satanists. And it really came to light in the 80s and 90s. So the first thing to say is that to the extent that there are a couple, you know, not too many crazy people who might want to join the Satanic Temple because they think that's... They they think that's what it's all about. Right, and they want to do it, Mm -hmm. and they think they can get, like, maybe they believe in the Illuminati and they want to join. They just have something against puppies and kittens. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I mean, you know, they can join. I mean, you know, all you have to do to join the Satanic Temple is, you know, get a membership card. There's no dues, there's no tithing, there's no, you know, background check. But certainly at the leadership level, they do intensive background checks and they do extensive interviews because it would only take one crazy person to commit a certain kind of vile act in the name of the Satanic Temple to kind of like bring the whole movement down. So they're really worried about that hmm. all the time. So those are the two things I'd say to that. Okay, okay great. Well, that, that uh, th- that's a great answer to that question because... Um, uh, it, it was one of the only unanswered questions I had after watching your documentary, and and congratulations on the distribution because uh, I mean this is this is gonna people are gonna see this people I are hope gonna so. see this. Oh, <laughs> I, well, you have the big magnolia logo at the beginning, so yeah, uh, I, I know that it's not just going to you know exist on a uh, you know a VOD platform somewhere. It's gonna get out. People are gonna see this. So tell tell us about your your distribution. Tell us about how how that came to be and and where where people can see this. Yeah. So yeah, we were very very lucky. Um, you know, more and more distributors are kind of interested in coming in earlier on projects and and sort of getting in on the kind of financing, you know, um, side. And Magnolia is one of those companies. And so we kind of came to them at the right moment where they were wanting to like sort of pick a couple projects to finance, uh, to really do the whole thing. 
from beginning to end and uh, Magnolia from the second we talked uh, at just a lunch very casual conversation at the beginning they understood what I was doing and it was very clear that the movie that I was making was the movie they were excited about and of course with the topic of Satanism like that was really important we had had plenty of pitch meetings with (laughs) companies whom we will not name who really didn't get it you know and it didn't matter like how many times I said the words (laughs) they were still like cool so like you know that will show the real Satanists right and I'm like oh my god like I just explained this so yeah so you know you know or like really just we're in it for like the kind of reality tv kind of salacious level and Magnolia totally got that we were trying to make a like pretty dense intellectual film that we also promised would be very fun and funny so yeah so Magnolia came on perfect partner dream collaborator every step of the way and uh they're putting the movie out in theaters um easter weekend fantastic so that's uh april 19th would be the the theatrical release date and i'm sure it'll start in new york and la and then hopefully you know go Uh, some other places i mean actually it it will i'll tell you like we had our first we had our salt lake city screening last night oh how did that go it was just epic like you know and i think that the movie is going to do better in places where you know that kind of theocratic infringement is actually happening all the time in new york or la not as much not as much and also you know frankly for my world you know it's a little bit like difficult to sort of like enjoy laughing at like a arkansas senator who's trying to get a ten commandments monument up because it doesn't affect me in a personal way and it feels a little bit like punching down or something you Mm. know like a little bit like kind of like let's make fun of these hicks or something but look if you're in a state where like that's your actual state senator you're like oh no No, whole different ball game that's very serious whole different ball game and and you have a better understanding of just how serious these issues are and it's easy to look at it from a safely secular place like where I'm from and then be like well what are these people really upset about when I first met Lucien he said something that I thought was completely insane but I mean, I, I kind of rolled my eyes at it internally. And he was talking about the importance of the work, you know, and he said, what people do not seem to grasp is that it is completely within the realm of possibility that a, a secular, modern state can fall to theocracy. If you're curious about that, all you need to look at is Iran in 1979. And it can happen. And it's not to say it's going to happen or it's, you know, for sure going to happen tomorrow or anything, but like it is not outside the realm of possibility. And when you look at something that looks a little bit, again, you can think it's stupid. You can be like, who really cares about this dumb Ten Commandments monument, right? Like find a better issue. But you have to realize that these people who want that Ten Commandments monument are not like going to get it and then be like, okay, we're done. Like it's only one of the thousands of steps they intend to take oh yes to bring us closer and closer into what you can only call a theocratic rule you know there are plenty of people in our government who have no concept of the separation of church and state like plenty at the highest levels and there's a very well financed very well funded very well resourced connected lobby in place trying to make these things happen and it is worse than people think so when Lucian said that thing about Iran I was kind of like what and it was really only through like more research and more education on my part that I realized that he was right <laughs> it actually really could happen and I was like oh it's actually not an exaggeration at all so as much as their campaigns are kind of 
largely local, you know, you're talking about city council meetings in Phoenix, Arizona, and, you know, kind of state level abortion laws in Missouri, and, you know, sort of certain senators in Arkansas and Oklahoma, like it all looks kind of like small potatoes, but I think it's hard to understand, it's hard to sort of like fully grasp the the bigness of it, really. Oh, yeah, you you string together a few little successes and it becomes a big success. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and um, Mm -hmm. going back to your Salt Lake City screening real quickly, uh, is there a Salt Lake City chapter? of the satanic temple and did they show up uh, at all or there 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 was and then it folded but i heard that they're regrouping so um yes and no maybe okay yeah there there were a ton of people in the audience who seemed to be if not members like certainly like you know a lot allies (laughs) or or, yeah allies who probably wouldn't mind learning more i was i was just curious how this might this might serve. This movie might serve as a recruitment tool. <laughs> like you, I mean, actually, I'm, I'm. I would imagine Lucian is going to be in, incredibly thrilled with the results. He's about to become a lot more famous. Mm-hmm. You're about to become a lot more famous. I've already heard a lot of great buzz about this from the the screenings that have happened so far. I can't really think of many other documentaries that I would call outright comedies. And even <laughs> though you're dealing with serious subjects, uh, it's really funny. It's well, really. I mean, it's it's a, it's really funny, and you interview some some great people. There's a wonderful. This is the cinematography podcast, so we are going to talk about cinematography yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit. But you know, uh, you'd have a wonderful mix of verite, mm-hmm. of uh, in the field, uh, running around, sort of uh, activist uh, footage combined with a very formal sit down interviews. Talk a little bit about your plan. Like, if, if there was a plan, I, I mean... Yes, there uh, was a plan. <laughs> have, you, have you worked with the, this cinematographer before? Have you guys... Uh, only on one short. Oh, so okay. we knew enough to know we liked each other, but, you know, just a little project together well, before. Well, tell me about the relationship with your cinematographer and how you guys kind of came together to craft the... I mean, with documentary, yeah. uh, form and function really follow close together. How did you come up with the style that you wanted to, to do yeah. for this? So my DP is uh, Nate Gomez, and... Um, we talked about the interviews early on, uh, and we knew we wanted to use the the iDirect, like which is that kind of interatron. For for our listeners who are non technical, it's a it's a beam splitter with mirrors that allows the person to look straight into the camera and see the face of the person who's asking questions. Right. So you're kind of like skyping with them, but you're actually making eye contact. And we knew we wanted to do that because we think the Satanists are extremely confrontational. We felt that that kind of direct eye gaze would be the right kind of confrontational for them and also because we wanted um you know the opportunity to you know just to connect with them as humans and so that felt very important we also wanted the the interview setup to be very formal and neutral Mm. like neutral 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 it sounds boring but that was important actually for this because you know the go-to dumb idea would have been like, let's have like a pentagram on the wall behind them and like some like red lights and fog. And it's just like, no, we weren't trying to like normalize them, but we did want to make it approachable. So this kind of neutrality felt very important in the interviews. It was very kind of also respectful of them. Like, let's take them seriously as like thinkers and like theologians and philosophers in their own right you know and which they deserve to which they deserve to of course and they never get that kind of treatment so that felt very important to me and then as far as like how we thought about shooting in the field the first thing to say about shooting in the field is that I had basically never done it like I mean I've been making documentaries for a long time but I'm like a weird filmmaker so most of my films have been archival or like animated or to the extent that I've filmed anything it's been very controlled like only in a studio this was a new experience for me and so my relationship with my cinematographer was very important and uh, Nati was so helpful because she was, um, first of all, obviously very experienced. 
And second of all, she really helped me learn my job, which was important. I needed a cinematographer who was going to help me learn how to be a director in those environments. I mean, it sounds embarrassing almost, but it was true. I didn't no. I mean, <laughs> Cinematography is a widely misunderstood craft out there, and it really doesn't get a lot of uh, attention. And I think that most of our listeners who are not familiar with the show and have not listened to it have not heard. It happens a lot of times, especially with first-time filmmakers. I know you're not a first-time mm-hmm. filmmaker, but the, the first time out there, usually DPs work on a lot of other people's projects. They have a lot of experience, and they're sort of like helping to... Sherpa the director into their role and say like hey maybe you want to well, maybe you want to pay attention to this or maybe this is worth paying attention to and it sounds like you got that which is really vital for being out there in those situations where I'm sure it was a little chaotic it was, was chaotic lot. and also you know Nadie was very um like when I mean, everyone liked her like she was able to develop her own rapport with the subjects and that was like super important how she kind of looks like a Satanist, which helped. She blended in. <laughs> oh, that's she great. She wears a lot of black, you know, tattoos. <laughs> so, so, so there was already sort of like an instant, like, you're my people connection. from. Yeah. The, oh, yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, there oh, was good. like, you know, like, yeah. I, I hope that you're really pleased with this. I, I got to say that I don't know what movie you set out to make, but the movie that you that you did make uh, seems to have really touched a lot of people. There was a lot of people coming out of there who were really like right on. There was there was a woman actually next to me in the theater, which every time someone mentioned one of the seven tenets of Satanism, she was basically saying, amen, amen. And then at some point she realized, she goes, oh man, hail Satan, hail Satan, which was like, which was really hysterical for me, of course, and actually everyone around, because she caught herself just doing it out you loud. You watched like a conversion. I did, it did, like in, in the process, and it looked, it, frankly, she looked like a 50-year-old Mormon woman, so uh, it was like, it was, it was kind of a, yeah. it was kind of an amazing experience. That's I, cool. What, what's your, what's your hope and goal? I know that you want to have a lot of people see this, but, mm-hmm. um, and it's going, it, it is going to get seen by a lot of people, and I'm sure that Magnolia's reach is going to be far and wide, but what do you want to do next with this? It, What's the next step? I just think there's a lot of different takeaways from the film that I'm quite pleased people to have, and I think it's pretty variable. For some people, I assume, um, who are coming from, again, more of that sort of knee-jerk, anti-religion background, like me, I mean, I I would hope that this film would actually bring them to a better understanding of what religion is and why it's so valuable, Um, and it's not just like some random mental illness, which like really a lot of people think. Um, and so I think that that could be a surprise for a lot of people who would come to the film because they think they're going to laugh at religious people and then realize that, like, that's not kind of the point. So there's, that's that. And then there's another element where it's like whatever you think of the Satanists and what they're doing, like, it's very inspiring to watch a group of people with really no resources at all um, come together with smart ideas and hard work and, like, change the world. I think that that's certainly a message that people always need to hear but I would say particularly now uh, and that you can be creative and you don't have to like fall in line and like just like sign up for your local democratic you know like go canvassing for your you know local senator it's great if you want to do that but not everyone does like a lot of people are too weird and rebellious to do that kind of stuff so to find a way to kind of plug in to this like nightmarish political situation that could work for people who are too weird for like standard politics just feels like really inspiring to me and I hope that that some people will be inspired in that way and then a whole other thing would be just to kind of walk out of the film and and sort of notice things that you never noticed before like how weird is it that our national motto is in God we trust like that's a little weird guys like maybe you know sort of I, I think before this project I might have like walked by a Ten Commandments monument and not even thought for a second about it like just 
of course that's there. And then you're like, wait a second. Like, so, you know, if you can kind of throw people, like what I want from art is to be destabilized. I want to be like thrown off and realize that I was wrong about something. Now, not everyone likes that, but I really want that from art. And I feel like there's many things in this film that are there to help people see that they were like maybe wrong about something. There's nothing I think people out there like more than having their core beliefs questioned. <laughs> So. I know, lucky me. <laughs> but but I gotta say that when when you do it well, uh, you do you well, do you do you, it with humor, right? You do you do it with humor, and, and you also let people think you let them laugh at the Satanist for like twenty whole minutes, and then you're like you know, so it lets people get their guard down a little bit, and then the sort of laughing at, frankly, kind of starts to shift to laughing with, and it, you can feel it happening in the room, and it's just a delight. It, it really is. And um, I want to leave it there. I think that's a, a an excellent place to stop. Penny, where can people find you? Oh, I'm on, I'm on Twitter at Lenny Payne. You know, you just switch those first two letters because people take the name Penny Lane all the time. Um, Penny Lane is my real name. In fact, my website is PennyLaneIsMyRealName.com. And if people are interested, there's a whole FAQ on there about my name. And you can find out everything you want to know about my name on there, so you never have to ask me. So yeah, I'm on Twitter at Lenny Payne, and the film is Hail Satan Film. Fantastic. Penny, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. This was fun. That was awesome. I uh, I can't wait to see that film. That just sounds like somebody made a film in a laboratory that I would love. Um, so the next film we have up is called Little Monsters. Tell me a little bit about Little Monsters. Uh, Little Monsters is directed by Abe Forsyth, who uh, I was very fortunate to be able to uh, meet and interview at Sundance. Uh, the movie got picked up by Neon. Uh, it's a two-year-old distribution company, and it was acquired for a n- rumored mid-seven-figure deal in partnership with Hulu. So uh, that's going to get a wide release, and it stars Lupita Nyong'o. So a- Academy Award winner Lupita Nyong'o playing... I'm going to say, you know, totally uh, to her typical sort of typecast here as a kindergarten teacher who kicks ass killing zombies. So my next question is, who's the cinematographer? The cinematographer is a gentleman named Lachlan Milne. And uh, it has a really big budget look, which is something that we talk about in the interview. And uh, the movie itself uh, in every way feels like it had a lot of budget, but I don't think it had a very big budget at all. And... uh, Lupita Nyong'o is fantastic, and Josh Gad. It's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful cast. And um, without further ado, here's the interview. This is Ilya Friedman with the Cinematography Podcast, and I'm sitting down with Abe Forsyth at the Sundance 2019 Film Festival. Abe, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Abe, you wrote and directed uh, a very, very popular movie here at the festival called Little Monsters. Uh, Tell me about uh, Little Monsters. Little Monsters is about a kindergarten teacher who has to protect her class through a zombie apocalypse. So stop the kids, the little five-year-old kids, from being ripped apart by zombies, but also, more importantly, in in some ways, stop their minds from being corrupted by the horrors that, that sort of surround them. But it's that's the elevator pitch. I mean, so it's it's a lot of things though. It's a it's a romantic comedy, it's a buddy movie. Um, in some ways, it's a musical as well. It's also a social satire um, in terms of where we are in the world at the moment. The military, the U.S. military in particular, plays a, a pretty strong role in this movie. But it's also you know it's it's a, it's a horror film. It's a it's a black comedy. A, a way that 
that someone pitched it to me recently, which I think is actually a really good way of summing it up, or at least pre- preparing people for what they're in for. Is it's it's an R-rated Pixar movie. <laughs> that's a, that's actually that's a good, that's a great description. Yeah. Right. Um, and and you got a wonderful cast. Yes. Yeah. So uh, tell us tell us about your. Academy Award-winning cast. So. Well, I mean, yeah. So Lupita Nyong'o plays Miss Miss Caroline, the, the the kindergarten teacher. Look, I mean, she was just the ultimate choice um, for that role for me, and we took a you know a swing for the fences to see if we could get her um, while we had a little bit of time. And you know, I was, I think, um, as surprised as anyone when she responded to the material. Look, the, the material is very personal to me for for a lot of reasons, and I know Lupita connected with a lot of the very personal things that are relatable to to whoever you are and wherever you come from and you know if if i the same way my five-year-old son was protected by his kindergarten teacher for the first year of um uh, school for him lupita is someone that i would believe and would feel happy looking after my son during a zombie apocalypse the movie is almost it's broad comedy mm-hmm. it's uh but she plays the straight person too she yeah. she plays it straight and and really it, it's a wonderful character uh, i don't want to give anything away but she has uh she's very much into music yes. and music plays a big part of it and then you even as the story unfolds you get to learn how into music she is and what sort of her past yes. is and her yeah. obsession with certain uh, musical acts and uh and there's some some really nice moments that that come from the music in this movie yeah yeah T- tell me about uh what where does the music come from Was well it- you know what that's it's actually it's something i haven't talked about um in in a long time it, it's music is potentially the most important plot device in this movie and that's to do with our lead character who is a washed up musician um at the beginning of, of the film who is he was, is performing a different side, an untruthful side of himself, and he's hiding behind this armor uh, and putting out this. You know, he's a he's a heavy metal musician and just behaving very immaturely in his life, but also through his music. It's not connected to anything, you know, within his soul. And he meets Miss Caroline, who is just not self conscious in any way. Will play the ukulele. Will play Taylor Swift on the ukulele for a class full of five year old children, and be completely unself conscious and connected to them and there for them. And it's through meeting her that he, we basically have our lead character to discover his real voice through through music and through meeting her. And then, yeah, we also then found a way of tying in her past. She has a she has a she herself has a dark past, and um, she has a which I won't give away what happens. But you also get to learn that how music has kind of led her to be who she is as well. Okay, so uh, this is the cinematography podcast. We're going to talk about the cinematography. Tell me about uh, your working relationship with your cinematographer on this and uh, how you guys approach the the look of the movie. So I'd worked with Lockie Milne as the cinematographer, and he and I had worked together uh, on my previous film, Down Under. And Down Under was a very different film for for an, it was similar in some ways, but but it was a, a it was a, a, more, a lot more bleak. It was a black comedy set during a race riot, a, a real race riot in, that we had in Australia about 12 years ago but it was much more restrained in in the way we we filmed it and we did really long takes and and we tried to use wide shots and let the actors block for camera rather than using the camera to block around the actors and that was a a very deliberate choice to uh feel like you were just observing everything um you're kind of neutrally observing this this really horrible behavior from all of these very racist characters that were in conflict this was we weren't able to use any of the same approach for this whatsoever and it, and, and it took us going through pre-production just figuring out so I needed to figure out certain things about how we could actually work with 11 five year old kids like the the you know ramifications of what that would be we filmed down under on one camera we had two cameras on this and that was just out of necessity more than anything else there was a, there was a couple of 
the first two weeks of the shoot, we only had one camera. It was an eight-week shoot, and we had some a couple of big days with kids in that, and it almost killed us because you, it's almost impossible. It is impossible to get kids to do the same thing twice, especially when we did actually try and make a deliberate choice on this to stay as wide as we could for as much of it as we could because we wanted as many of the kids in the frame at one time, and that was because I didn't want it to feel like we were cheating by having just lots of close-ups where you could tell people have been giving kids line readings. But when you do that with one camera and then you try and get consistent takes from take to take, it's just impossible. So we really did realise that you needed A camera. Uh, Thinking like you were shooting with one camera, with the A camera, but just getting B camera, and we had a really skilled camera team, just going in and just trying to pick out these little individual moments amongst the chaos. And I think that was something that then, once we got into the flow of that, that that really then uh, dictated the so the visual look of the of the movie. We tried to use Steadicam a lot as well too, but, but, I, but after a couple of days of using Steadicam and trying to corral 11 five-year-olds and zombies in the same frame, we went, okay, we've, we've got to actually put it, put it on the shoulder and, and, and just be a lot more sort of like free and loose with it. I think you were really successful in being able to not make it look like you were having the worst time of your life. But I know that 11 five-year-olds, I mean, uh, even the quote-unquote professional five-year-old actors mm. are still five years old. No, yeah, there, there's, yeah, no, yeah totally. I don't think there is such a thing as a professional <laughs> five-year-old actor. It's like, you you know, the, you're, and this is the, for, for me, it was all about capturing that innocence of a five-year-old. So it was trying to make them unselfconscious, make them not think about the camera, make them not feel like they're on set, make them not feel like people are watching them and that they're giving a performance. It was trying to trick performances out of them while letting them be themselves. I think there's some stage parents out there who would disagree that their five-year-olds are not professionals. But uh. I, I can guarantee you that, yes, that is the case. <laughs> but, but even when you're dealing with and look, we dealt with some stage parents on, on this movie. I, it, it's inevitable when you have, when have 11 children. But you also, even, even just when you're talking about extras and other people too, oh, it's yeah. like there's, there's yeah. uh, working with kids is... Um, kids, animals, but visual effects. There's all Mm -hmm. kinds of things that can uh, derail your production. And the fact that you got it done in eight weeks and the fact that it's as successfully pulled off as you did, which is 100%, it really... At no point did I think that you were trying to hide or cut and just do a close-up on someone. No, it it, it, did great. Uh, Tell me about sort of the, the... the color palette. This is a saturated movie, yeah. and, and when you when the the connection made between like a, an R rated Pixar film, it does feel like that. It feels like um, it's very high key lighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Josh Gad playing this incredibly colorful character who comes in. He's just he's like a scene stealing sociopath. He's just like it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's it's kind of an incredible performance there. Uh, tell me a little bit about what what you guys were thinking for the the color palette of this movie. You know, um, the one thing that I said to every head of department when they got started on this was I wanted this to feel like this was a movie that a studio had made. I didn't want this to feel like a little independent movie. It is an independent movie and we didn't have an incredibly... You would never know. Great. And that was the hardest challenge for everyone too. It was like, think about this like this has come out of Universal. Um, You know, imagine the logo before. And if we can make it, if we can give it that look uh, and that, you know, that comes down to the way we use the camera, obviously the, the wardrobe and production design are very sort of key elements to that too, but also how you pitch the performances as well too. They needed to be pitched at a certain level, still with truth, but pitched in a way which feels like, oh yeah, we're in that kind of safe comedy movie. And if I knew that if we were able to set up the world in that way, then when some of the more shocking humour comes out, it will be even more unexpected. And then similarly, when when the heart of the movie starts to really reveal itself too, people are go- I knew people were going to hear about this movie going, it's a movie with zombies, like school kids and zombies. So then it was a matter of going, okay, I want them at the end of the movie to go, 
I didn't know it was going to be that. Because a lot of people go, oh, I don't like zombie movies. And it's like, yeah, yeah, this is not... I think you know, genre people will, will hopefully enjoy... Well, genre, no genre people are enjoying it. But it's like... But it's a movie... It's it's Zombies are a device. They're not what it's about. It's it's zombie comedy, yeah. for sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. it, it is, is definitely a comedy. And uh, it's comedy with a little bit of gore, which I think satisfies a couple of different uh, yes. demographics yeah. there that, that, that people... You feel you like know. you have to tick certain boxes... And look, we had an amazing team. Odd our studio did all of our prosthetic effects for us. They won the Oscar for Fury Road and, you know, worked on Alien Covenant. And these guys are amazing. And, and they just to use them as an example, which, which you know, filters through to, to every department in their own ways. They didn't have to do this movie. You know, they took it on because they, they believed in it and they always wanted to do a zombie movie as well too. But the great joy for me with working with people like that were I was able to go, look, we all know zombie movies. We've, we've all grown up with them. We're on, you know, I'm... Dawn of the Dead, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead was one of the most seminal movies for me when I was a little kid. But it's like, but now I want to give you the opportunity to do what you've always wanted to do in a zombie movie. What, what, do, what do you want to see? What are some gags that you like? Go away, think up gags and bring them to me. I don't want to dictate to you what it should be because you're you're the, you run a makeup studio. You got into this because of George Romero, like, and and then they bring you these incredible gags. There's a, there's a gag with. Uh, a zombie eating a, a, a very particular, yes, <laughs> and it's like that. You know, this is an example that came from them, and that was just like genius. So, it's it's a great moment. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm giving nothing away. No. but that, and, but the visual, the visual is fantastic, and it's so funny because I was thinking that exact exactly as you were saying it. Uh, tell tell me about what other kind of movies uh, you mentioned. Of course, um, Dawn of the Dead, and, and you've made dark, you know, dark mm. dark movies. Uh, tell me what uh, what other movies are in sort of like your all-time favorite uh, filmography that help inform this movie like what what sort well, of look, I yeah, mean yeah I have your influence I have multiple filmmakers that are, that are very key influences just on, on me wanting to be a director Peter Jackson I saw Bad Taste obsessively when I was 11 years old and Peter Jackson was was the person that made me go I, w- I want to be a director I was obsessed with Bad Taste Meet the Feebles Brain Dead and then but then seeing him do Heavenly Creatures uh, um, I saw that when I was a very key point I think when I was 14 15. I was like, wow, and then you can actually, you can come from that world, but then you can do this. And, and Heavenly Cruise is still to this day is one of my all-time favorite films. Coen Brothers, Peter Weir, George Wheeler, and George Miller, you know, like all of these people are very important to me. But actually the, the single biggest influence on this movie, and, and it wasn't something that I even realized until after I'd written the script, was the work of Bong Joon-ho. And Okja in particular became the movie that I went back to for nourishment during the shoot of the movie. I watched that movie so many times. And... You know, it's it's different in a lot of ways, but but what I uh, uh, really appreciate about it, his work and that movie in particular is he takes real risks with tone, and he doesn't he runs towards those risks. He doesn't pull back from them, and I think he's got a very singular voice um, and able to pull together. Oxford is it's uh, it, it's hilarious. It's an action movie, but ultimately it's a beautiful film that that really leaves you with something. And you know, the end of that movie with. Um, you know the 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 pig, the big pig, and the little pig, and the little girl, and and her grandfather. Just that quiet moment at the end of that movie is is one of the best endings I've ever seen in a movie. So yeah, I I, I really appreciated that movie more than I think any any other movie. It, like even recently, compared to other movies as well too, because it's just I can't compare it to anything else. You're describing what makes movies timeless, yeah, and, that, and ones that can hold up for decades or or longer even these days um let let me say congratulations i heard that your i heard your movie got distribution yes yeah i mean and that's i mean that's oh yeah that's a a new experience for me (laughs) let me just put it like that were were you up until the wee hours of the morning uh negotiating a deal or did it happen pretty quickly it happened uh yeah it happened after after and you know at a certain point i had to kind of stop and just um but yeah we uh 
yeah, we had some very good news very, very early in the morning. That's great. So um, if, if the ink is now dry, can you say uh, who it is, who acquired yeah, it? Yeah, so it's a neon. Um, yeah, okay. And, and that feels like a really right fit for that. And they're, they're planning something uh, in collaboration with Hulu, which is, um, I mean, I can't say what it is yet, but it's a, yeah, it's a really interesting. And, you know, I'd be interested to see how this would work for other films in the future too, but I think it's, it's a perfect fit for, for what we've got. And it will involve a little bit later in the year, but... Um, yeah, I think we've found, we've found the right home. And and for me just personally as well too, um, I've had a lot of investment and help and support from our government uh, funding body, Screen Australia, um, in particular on my last movie and on this one as well. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, I haven't, haven't had to do with government finance in, in other countries in the world, but the fact that they've supported me and the types of movies that I make in, in the way that they have means a lot and to to be able to get a sale like this, um, to be able to bring this movie over here and get a sale like this, I, you know, I, I feel really, it's made me just feel really good because I go, yeah, I, I feel like I've paid back a little bit of what they've given me, only just a little bit, but it's it's really hard to get a film noticed any, anywhere in the world. And, and I feel like my sensibility, although it's very, very Australian, it, it struggles. My sensibility actually struggles in Australia, and there's a lot of reasons for that without going into detail. But to be able to come over here and 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 similarly, we showed my last movie at Fantastic Fest, and an American audience looks at my work, I think, a little bit differently than an Australian audience does. So the thing I'm most happy about is I feel like I've yeah I've just paid back some some goodwill from from the the government. Uh, you, you definitely have, and I'll, I'll tell you that um, this was a really really good competitive year at Sundance. I mean, there, you, you uh, have a lot of, uh, a lot of movies out there that are all vying for attention, many of them vying for distribution. And it's fantastic that you got your distribution, especially amongst all these other projects that are out there. Cause a lot of these companies can't say yes to all of them. They can't yeah. take all of them. They got to choose really what they want and, and go for that. So congratulations. You know, I, I looked at your filmography and saw that you of course were an actor yeah. for, for a long time. Uh, how do you, how do you feel uh, now working behind the camera? It's a, it's a, it's a different, uh, I, do you want to keep doing acting? No, I never wanted to work in front of the camera. That, oh, that, yeah. That's the irony of, of it. My, my father's an actor and um, primarily a theater actor in Australia. And I kind of stumbled into it through um, through him and through connection. He wasn't a pushy stage father at all, but it was just something I used to use because I used to get quite a bit of acting work, and I actually used to use it to supplement my my filmmaking career. And then, but at a certain point, I was just too frustrated of working with bad directors. And I've worked with probably over forty directors as an actor, and I can count on one hand the ones that I had a meaningful experience with. But I also the things that I learned from those directors that I can count on one hand really helped inform the type of director I am for actors and you know I am an actor's director I'm, I'm really into the technical way of how you tell a movie I'm into everything but first and foremost it's about protecting the actors and making them feel safe and comfortable that they can deliver the type of performances you know Lupita, Josh and Alex and, and the kids um, deliver in this movie um, because I really believe that that's where the essence of a story either sinks or swims and then everything if you start there and then move your way out in support of that then I think you've got a better chance of doing it the other the other way around because I've been on sets personally um, as an actor and I've uh, experienced all the all the you know acting's hard and it's like not being supported yeah, yeah yeah and it just makes you close down and not want to give give your best and if you don't feel like a director has your back so so yeah look I'm not I never want to act again but I, but I really enjoy giving actors the space that I for the majority of my acting career wish I had. Abe, we're, we're, we're basically out of time now, but uh, where can people find you online? Are you on social media? Is there a, a Facebook page for the movie? Uh, Any, anything yet like that? Look, I'm on Twitter. That's that's kind of, and I, I've, um, I, I gave up my Facebook 
page after seeing Social Network a long time ago now. So I haven't been on Facebook for a long time. But um, Twitter's, Twitter's the best place to, to where, get me. Where can they find you on it's Twitter? It's at Abe Forsyth. Okay. Abe, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. And so our last interview is uh, about a movie called Sweetheart. Tell me about Sweetheart. Sweetheart is fantastic. And I, I don't really know about the uh, distribution for... I know it's a... Um, I know it's a Blumhouse production. I know that distribution was uh, available as of Sundance. And I haven't heard anything about it, which to me is like is mind blowing because it's one of my favorite movies I saw there. Really? And it's one it's, of your favorite movies at Sundance was a horror movie. I feel like we're making progress, Ilya. <laughs> it's really good. It is. You've been hanging out with me too long. You know what? Uh, it it's a horror movie. It's a thriller. It's a creature feature. It's also kind of like meets Lost. So that's that that's what I would say. It's um it all takes place on an island. It's a minimalistic movie. There's not a lot of characters, there's not a lot of dialogue, and you aren't given a lot of backstory. You're just kind of like thrust into the story and you kind of figure it out as you go along. But JD Dillard, who I was very fortunate to interview the the director, it's brilliant. It's brilliantly written, it's brilliantly uh, performed, it's brilliant brilliantly directed. The movie brilliantly to me, shot by brilliantly shot by Stefan Ducio. And uh, God, is this movie gorgeous. It's, uh, I don't want to ruin it and give anything away, but I will just tell you this, that you must see this. Like, I know you, Ben, will see this, but anyone who's listening to the sound of my voice, you're going to hear about it. This is like one of those uh, horror thriller movies, uh, like 28 Days Later, that people just started immediately buzzing about, like, oh, you have to see this, you have to see this, you have to see this. This is one of those movies. And I guarantee you that J.D. Dillard is going to be a household name if he keeps making movies like this. This movie is incredible, and I cannot give it a higher, higher recommendation for you to watch. All right, now let's listen to your interview. Well, that's a pretty high praise. Let's listen to your interview. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. I'm Ilya Friedman, and I have the distinct pleasure of sitting down with J.D. Dillard, who is right across the table from me. Say hello, J.D. Hey, how are you? <laughs> hey, uh, you just made an awesome movie. Did oh, thanks, it, did, man. Did it premiere last night? or premiered night last night at midnight, which is way past my bedtime. But uh, yeah, such a fun crowd. I, I hadn't been to a midnight screening, so just such a different energy than you know, watching something at 9 a.m. So <laughs> the, the midnight crowd certainly gets into it. And uh, I'll tell you, um, there's a lot of buzz around Sweetheart. And uh, there is people talking about that maybe a midnight movie might be able to win Best of Best Audience Award, which doesn't, uh, I don't know if it's ever happened, but uh, oh, that, that, that's, uh, that's that's news to me. That's, I mean, hey, that's, I like that. That's, that's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great movie, and uh, it's got a very small cast, and it's got incredible production value. I know it was a Blumhouse-produced uh, yep. indie studio production here. Yep. So tell our listeners a little bit about your movie. So Sweetheart is kind of just like a Spartan survival horror thriller. Obviously, it does lean a little bit more on some of its horror tropes, but wanted it to be purposefully, yeah, Spartan but dynamic experience. Part of our, my co-writers, Alex, and both named Alex, Alex and Alex. Yeah, it kind of came from just our weird overreaction to so many movies that we like, having so much explanation about like why this story is even happening. 
And just to sort of try to counter-program that almost as an exercise, we wanted to try a movie where you wake up with this character and you end with this character. There's no flashback. There's no sort of narrative mechanic to dig deep into them. So everything that you find out about Jen, played by Kiersey in this movie, you find out by watching her do. And yeah, it, it just seemed like a, a, a fun thing to try, you know, given our obsession with genre, uh, to, to try something like that. Tell us about your cast and how they uh, how they came on board. And there, there's only a few of them, so yeah. so give us a quick uh, quick rundown. So yeah, it's a very small cast. So we have Kiersey playing Jen, who was our lead. We have Emery, Kiersey Clemens, Kiersey Clemens. Yep. We have um, Emery Cohen, who you know, not to spoil too much, but arrives at a certain point in the film, uh, and it's revealed that that is her boyfriend, a friend of theirs, played by Hannah Megan Lawrence. And then we have two other characters who, yeah, I mean, I think for... To, Small parts. Yeah, to, to avoid spoilers, uh, it, it'll be very clear who and, yeah, who they play in the film. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very, very small cast. The, the film in and of itself is quite contained and even... Yeah, even the size of our cast sort of is indicative of that too. Kiersey was uh, one of the the stars of uh, Hearts Beat Loud, which is yep. a, which is a big hit um, a, a while back. And uh, had you seen her before? Was that uh, before that movie? Or? I had. Yeah, I'd seen her in things that couldn't be more dissimilar from Sweetheart. Um, you know, I'd seen her obviously in Dope, and I'd seen her in uh, Neighbors Two, which I watched in a plane actually on my way to go meet her uh, and was just like laughing the entire time. I was like, okay, well, this is definitely not the vibe of our film, but uh, I love <laughs> I love everything about her. And yeah, Kiersey is just, I don't know, there's a quality about her where she, she is very like every woman. She's immediately relatable, you know, and again, part of the function of this film is to, to put someone on the island that doesn't feel like an expert, you know, doesn't feel like deep in their backstory, they were a Navy SEAL and here's how they're going to, you know, put their, you know, survival tools to... to they're going to use fish intestines and make a, a castle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's kind of the fun. I mean, you know, the relatability of her experience on the island is, I think, what my own experience on the island would be. Um, and yeah, there, there's just like a, an innate relatability that I think yeah, Kiersey imbues. So this is the cinematography podcast. Uh, tell me about working with your cinematographer and uh, how you had you guys worked together before. So Stefan and I uh, hadn't worked together before. He came as a recommendation from one of my Blumhouse producers because he had just shot uh, Upgrade for them. It's funny, like I've long been obsessed with Greg Frazier and I had pulled a lot of stills from things that he had shot and completely independent of that, someone recommended Stefan to me and was like, oh yeah, uh, yeah, he's kind of like in the Greg Frazier world, like they're both from Australia and, you know, and I, when I looked at Stefan's work, I mean, it, it immediately was, I think, the sort of slick naturalism that I, I really wanted Sweetheart to have. Well, you definitely achieved that. And that's a, a Stefan Ducio. Yep. Yeah, Stefan's got some some great work, and I saw that he won an award from the Australian Society of uh, Cinematographers, so that's, that's he, awesome. He won that actually while we were shooting. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> that's great. Uh, yeah, it, it's got a real big budget, slick, glossy look to to the movie. Was that always the intention uh, to go to go for that look? I mean, it doesn't feel like rough and tumble, scraping every penny in the jungle kind of type of thing. You have a big budget look. Yeah, I mean, you know, very early on, Stefan and I talked about, and honestly, it, it, the, a lot of the same kind of ethos 
that I shot slight with was put into this. And just in that, yes, we're not spending the most money putting this together, but that doesn't mean that camera can't be a character and we can't really spend the time to, yeah, just to frame this movie intelligently. We also had the benefit of sh shooting it in such an incredible location. I mean, our show was entirely on Bounty Island in Fiji. Um, and, you know, the entirety of the show was exteriors, you know, just kind of like learning to roll with the environment itself. And there, there was already so much to play with. But yeah, very early on, we, we just knew that we wanted this to look and feel big. It's quite easy to tap into nature and kind of let it assist you in doing that. <laughs> but, you know, there's not a lot of handheld in the film. There, there's honestly, even from just a the standpoint of what tools we were able to use. I mean, so much of that was even dictated by what we could get to the island. Um, so, you know, you can't get a techno crane to a tiny island when the tide is low. So uh, that stuff did not, that stuff never made it to Fiji. <laughs> but, but I would imagine probably gimbals or Steadicam or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was a lot, a lot of the show was on Steadicam. Um, you know, a lot of the show was on sliders, but, you know, even Dolly Track and some of the environment we were in was just a little too difficult. So, you know, it, it, it kind of constantly was a, a battle between, yeah, like what the environment would allow us and also making sure that, yeah, we didn't have to compromise what our visual aesthetic was. And forgive me, I didn't ask this in the, the, the pre-question sort of before we got started, but uh, you guys are getting a distribution, right? You guys have a, uh, a distribution coming for this movie? Uh, so we're actually we're actually here open to distribution. Ooh, yeah. okay. Um, so... Uh, you know, the film. I know it just showed last night. So yeah, but, uh, yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. But you know, it, it is via Blumhouse. But um, yeah, I think we're right now just exploring what the best partnership looks like for this film. Okay, I won't I won't ask you any questions about uh, budget or days or any of those other things. If you can talk about days, though, I'd be curious yeah. how many days you shot this over. Uh, we shot this in twenty five. That, so that's really quick. Yeah, and again, it, it, it's with the show being entirely, you know, outside. Subject to weather. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're dealing with, I didn't know what a lunar tide was until the other year. Um, <laughs> you know, when the environment obviously just being as volatile as it is, I mean, taking this film to grade was so important just because, you know, if we're cutting, if we're just cutting a scene by even a half day, like shooting part of it in the morning and another part in the afternoon, the severity in which the environment can change is just very, very, very intense. <laughs> it looks like it might have been a little windy out there. Certainly windy. Yeah. So even when we were talking about lighting night exteriors, like putting blimps in the sky was just completely out of the question. And even when we put our sort of scissor lifts up, it was even hard to keep those steady uh, with some of those tropical winds at night. So... Yeah, certainly was just a challenge technically. Again, I mean, days were their own peculiar thing and fighting cloudy versus blue sky and whatnot. But, you know, come nighttime on a budget, lighting an entire beach uh, certainly has certainly has its difficulties. So. Tell me a little bit about what other types of movies you like. Like what movies inform this movie? Because I, I definitely feel like it's familiar. I think this is exactly what, what maybe a filmmaker wants. It's familiar, but also being original at the same time. Um, what what sort of influences did you have uh, coming into this? You know, funny enough, like not that many horror movies. We talked a lot about All Is Lost. We talked a lot about uh, Contiki. And both of those really just because of their pretty Spartan approach. Obviously, environmentally, there are a lot of similarities, you know, in, in looking at how we were going to design the look for night. I mean, there was just some really great stuff from Contiki, which we talked about plenty, just, you know, using lightning to sort of, immediately imply scale to just like how much space is out past this island and obviously i mean 
We watched Alien a thousand times uh, in prep, mostly just because ostensibly we do have a man in suit creature movie. Just looking at the best way to edit that and to shoot that, taking whatever we could, knowing that, yeah, I mean, we were going to be dragging a 130-pound foam latex suit uh, to Fiji uh, and just making sure, yeah, we, we always knew what the best way, the best ways to look at that, which obviously took took a little bit of time. I mean, you know, night one shooting with the, the creature, I don't think was even our best night shooting the creature. And we, we finally got into a rhythm learning how to shoot him. But yeah, I, I think Contiki, Castaway, I mean, it's hard to not to talk about Castaway when you're talking about a Stranded Island movie. <laughs> uh, and yeah, certainly a lot of Alien there. You can definitely see that uh, when you watch the movie. I can definitely see all, all of those influences, but uh, it's a wonderful original story that uh, I'm not going to give anything away, but I'm going to encourage everyone to go out and see. And let me ask you before I forget, because this is something I have a tendency to forget sometimes. Uh, is there like a Facebook page or an Instagram or anything that exists for the movie so that when someone's listening to this, they can go, oh, I want to learn more. I want to follow the, the progress. Uh, is there some place people can go to find out about Sweetheart? You know, right now, it's going to be just via Blumhouse as we're figuring out what the best life for the movie is and, you know, how best to share it and where our audience is going to live. Yeah, we haven't developed too, too much. Uh, that's kind of outward facing quite yet. But Blumhouse, I think, will certainly be the, the best route to information about what's, uh, what's going on with All us. All right, go to the Blumhouse website. And if you don't see something there, bother them and say that you want something yes, up there. Yes, please, please effort. bother them. So. <laughs> uh, talk about the producers and the, and the production of this, because I also feel like that's an area that gets overlooked a lot. People talk about cast and stars and everything. But Cinematography Podcast, we try to bring in some other elements here. Talk about working with your producers and the development of this project and uh, and getting it out into the world yeah i mean so sort of the creative development on this was peculiar in that the script is i think the one we ended up using to shoot was about like 63 64 pages and that's largely because i mean there's hardly any dialogue in the film that being said your script notes only go so far uh when there's not much script <laughs> um so very quickly the conversation turned sort of the the technical producing of the film and that was honestly really wild and you know at times a little complicated uh, figuring out where to shoot based on rebate and all the sort of environmental complications, you know. Logistics, I'm imagining. Is logistics were wild, like how, how are we shipping this there and, you know, how long does it take to freight this over wherever, you know, but then you're also looking at like, is there Zika here? Is there, you know, political stability here? So, I mean, you know, we looked at a variety of locations internationally, but Fiji really proved to be yeah, kind of the perfect home for us. Um, it's a great look too. Would you go back to Fiji and do it again? Yeah, I would. I would. I mean, you know, I think having Sweetheart nothing too. Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> having having nothing to do with Fiji, I think I need a I need a little time off the island. Uh, um, you were there a while. So. We were we were there a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, started growing. I used to have a buzzed head, and now I have a, a full head of almost dreads. Uh, so <laughs> the island has certainly stayed with me. But you know, yeah, the, the, the sort of technical producing of it was just, yeah, it was kind of a constant chess game, figuring out how we we're going to get things to the island, figuring out where we're going to house people, figuring out how we we're going to commute, you know, 40 to 60 people to a smaller island off the one that we lived on every single day, um, you know, 35 minutes each way. So yeah, there, there logistically, there was a lot going on. I owe so much of that to our um, you know, line producers and our, our actual producers. It was certainly no easy task. You want to give them a shout out? You want to give people credit for? Uh, for yeah, so that, that's going to be Mark Catcher. That's going to be Jeanette and Bea and uh, Bill, Alex and Alex. Um, so yeah, that whole team. I mean, made sure that we could 
get to and from safely to the island and then while on the island maintain our safety (laughs) that's so Uh, that's so key i think there's this um misconception that uh making movies is always uh so easy and so safe and so fun but really it is hard work with long days and uh uncertainties and you just have to kind of go for it sometimes so so uh congratulations to you on 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 pulling it off so well and i'm going to say like you know people talk about don't working with like don't work with kids animals and then maybe they say like vfx but when you're all outside 100 percent the weather the weather is so difficult to deal with it's why people try to do everything they can on a stage if possible so yeah no absolutely so 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 jd tell me what's next for you what's uh i mean i know you're you want to get this movie out out there but did you are you already working on other stuff what's uh what's next for you yeah working on a handful of things and you know as it goes it's uh you know i feel like this is kind of a a career of plate spinning uh (laughs) and you know a lot of things that i'm excited about i mean i think all are just a hair too early to even be clear to me if they're happening soon or not (laughs) There was kind of a, a, a minor departure in the middle of Sweetheart uh, where I was in a pretty crazy auto accident. Oh, no. Um, and the movie went on hiatus for four, three months. And, and coming back to that and getting back into the film and kind of relearning the film and, you know, kind of teaching myself to fall back in love with it. It feels like I haven't been to set in a thousand years. Oh, wow. Uh, having, to, you know, having to have lived through that experience. Um, so I'm, I'm super keen on going back and shooting. And look, I mean, I feel like not to... Turn it too existential, but you know, turn I, existential. I, we love know, existential. We've got time. Yeah, we um, look, I've made two films. The only way I know I can make better films is by making more films. I think, yeah, as you sort of approach or even cross the finish line on one, at least for 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 my own personal appetite, it it, it only it only makes you want to go back to set more. And this is a horrible, horrible, horrible metaphor, but it's like you know when you have to go to the bathroom and then like as you approach the bathroom door you suddenly have to pee like 4,000 times more your, your body's giving you a message exactly. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about going back to set it's like I am so the closer close. the closer you get <laughs> yeah the, the more you want to do the more it. I need it so um <laughs> uh all that to say, yeah, it's time. It's time to shoot again. So, so hopefully, there's some clarity on that uh, early this year. JD, tell me about how this movie um, is the same or different from your previous feature, Slight. One thing that's been peculiar, and and honestly, I'm still having only screened the movie like 12 hours ago, and very actively processing that. <laughs> still, I think watching it with an audience last night really showed me how close Sweetheart is to Slight in a sense. I want to make movies where people who normally don't get to do the cool things get to do the cool things. And in Slight, you know, it's a young black kid, uh, young black uh, boy. And Slight is your previous feature. Yeah, Slight yes. is my first feature. And yeah, I think S- Sweetheart kind of just does that with Kiersey. And, and it's kind of how I want to approach genre and telling the story with, with different people f- living in those characters is just kind of how I, I personally want to approach the diversity issue. So yeah, I, 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 I know that is, that's kind of loose, but I'm still even just after last night trying to form that tie a, a little bit between, between these two films. And, and are you purposely trying to do just one word title movies? So, yeah, I mean, I joked when I had to submit my, my Sundance bio, I, I mentioned that, yeah, very soon I'm going to try to make a movie that doesn't start with the letter S. <laughs> so uh, that that's my big piece of growth for this year, hopefully. Um, so I'll start with that. But no, I mean, I, I, you know, there was a tweet that I saw shortly after Slight came out. It wasn't even about Slight, but it was just... Some guy was just like, you know what? I want to, I just want to see black people fight dragons and fly spaceships. And I was like, you know what? I am here for that. Like I, that, that is, that is nothing against any movie that deals with civil rights or, you know, 
identity or anything like that. But I, I also just part of how I want to contribute uh, is by, you know, putting people that look like me in genre. And then shortly after, try to make something that doesn't start with the letter S. So, JD, that just about does it for time. Where can people find you uh, online or if, if you are on on the, the social webs? At all? I, I have social web identities. Um, so on both Twitter and Instagram, I'm at JG Dillard. Uh, so, yeah, come say hi. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, man. So uh, that that wraps up the four part Sundance uh, special series, uh, 2019 Sundance specials. And uh, hopefully we can do this again uh, next year for the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. Uh, I hope so. And I just just so everyone out there understands, we are not reporting on just the movies that we saw. There's a whole lot of other movies that that we that we saw at Sundance, and it was a extremely strong year at Sundance for for movies. I mean, pros- possibly the strongest I I can remember out of all the the times I've been there, which I think this is now my sixth know. I, time. I think 1999 was a pretty strong year. <laughs> I wasn't there in '99, so well, I, I can't you know, speak to that. To be f- to be clear, Happy Texas was a, was a big winner there that year. All right, I, Happy Texas, good movie. That's it's a very a, good movie. Yeah. But uh, we did not include all the movies we saw. Like I I look at the coverage that some other publications do online about Sundance, and literally everything that they go see gets uh, gets the same write up and the same treatment as everything else. We are trying to curate for our listeners. Uh, real highlights, really good stuff that's worth seeing. There's a couple things that we glossed over that are going to have you know big distribution deals and people get to see and everything else. But we're trying to definitely shine a light on maybe some of the stuff that is uh, less appreciated or might get you might get uh, lost beneath the headlines. But go see Sound of Silence, go see Sweetheart, go see some of these fantastic movies. You 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 won't be sorry. So uh, thank you for uh, sticking with us for all four of these. And Ilya, who do we have to thank for all this work? Of course, Alana Cody. Thank you so Always. much our producer uh k zelatrachi thank you so much for the music that uh that you keep giving to us it's the music of my heart <laughs> and our editorial staff uh, ben katz and abby corbett thank you so much for putting these things together cool so i hope you enjoyed it and uh let us know go on uh twitter or uh facebook or whatever or, uh, give us uh give us some feedback we love the feedback oh we love feedback we love it when people subscribe and we love oh you know what would really help us share please share this i can't tell you how heartbreaking it is for me to run into people who tell me they love the show but then they've also never shared it with any of their friends anyway thank you very much and we will see you back here shortly for a normal interview style episode of the cinematography podcast this has been the cinematography podcast presented by hot rod cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com don't forget to subscribe to our show on itunes and connect with us on facebook and twitter thanks for listening